iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today in the studio, it is The Times' very own James Gearbrandt. Coming up, we'll look ahead to another busy week of Champions League action, but first to Old Trafford. And before we get on to our lovely old friend VAR, let's take a look at the match as a whole, as Adam Lallana's late equaliser saved a point for an under-par Liverpool as they drew one all at Manchester United. Away from the controversy that is VAR, Liverpool without Mo Salah looked unusually nervy, with Marcus Rashford and Daniel James causing them defence problems up and down the flanks. Now, the result moves United into 13th, seven points off the top four, while Liverpool see their lead at the top cut to six points and it, of course, ends their winning streak in the league. Halted now at 17 games in a row, one victory short of equaling Manchester City's record. But, James, does this result prove Liverpool lack a strength in depth in any way? I didn't think Liverpool played very well Mm. at all. Certainly not for the first kind of hour of the match. And I thought it was so kind of so funny watching the this match and you're talking about a team in Liverpool who are, I think, probably one of the two best teams in Europe. The two one of the two best, most well coached teams in Europe. Obviously European champions, obviously as we all know, on this incredibly long winning streak in the Premier League. And it just for me was kind of a snapshot into how frustrating it must be to coach a team because even at that kind of, you know, peak of excellence that Liverpool are at, the team actually really didn't function very well for the first kind of hour of this match. Um, They looked really kind of uncertain as to how, didn't really kind of have a sort of, you know, method of, you know, means of creating chances, didn't really know how they were going to kind of progress the ball into the kind of, you know, into the penalty box, into the final third. You know, um, you sort of ended up with kind of Alexander-Arnold kind of crossing it from positions that were far too deep or they would kind of try to smuggle it through the middle, but they wouldn't quite be able to get it through. Um, so I didn't I didn't feel Liverpool played well, but they did obviously, I think, improve as the, as the kind of second half wore on. And I think they, they finished the match quite strongly. I mean, do they lack strength in depth? Uh, I mean... I, yes, to an extent. I mean, obviously, in those in those forward positions, your your backups are obviously Origi, who played uh, yesterday. Obviously, you've got likes of Shakiri as well. I mean, you know, look, they're they're not they're not Man City. They're not kind of they're not PSG in terms of the kind of you know the sort of elite quality that they have backing up those positions. I I, I think one other thing to mention is that um, this for me was a match that. Nabi Keita was, you know, obviously they signed Nabi Keita at the kind of 
summer before this last summer. Um, and, and for me, I would have expected Cater to have, to have maybe be at a higher level or, or to be, you know, to have kicked on more than he has done. For me, this was a match where he, he could really have played because I think obviously you lost a little bit from uh, not having Salah. And so I think, you know, had you played Cater instead of Henderson, that would maybe have given the team a better balance, a bit more threat from midfield. Obviously, it would have been much easier to kind of, you know, would have given you a bit more flexibility to change to the 4-2-3-1, which they tried to do. And obviously, Henderson ended up playing on the right, which looked very unnatural. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I sort of, um, I I kind of feel like there's more to come from him, but I, I think maybe he's not, yeah. It, it's a game where I think they would have, you know, maybe liked to start him, but... Well, after the match, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Marcus Rashford suggested that they were disappointed at not holding on for the win but Gregor will they see any positives going forward from this game absolutely just in the sheer fact that everyone predicted that Liverpool were gonna <laughs> gonna walk all over them and it didn't work out that way in in any way or shape or form uh I think Manchester United deserve real credit for the way they they set up tactically um and their performance in the first half you know I think I think I think Liverpool were probably caught caught a little bit by surprise a how how much but with the energy and sort of and gumption that, that Manchester United showed at the start, they were really right in, right in their faces. And also with the fact that they deployed Rashford and James on either wing. And everyone talks about how to, you know, how to stop, how to negate Liverpool's full, full backs. And, you know, they were talking about that in the studio beforehand. And I don't think anyone really predicted that really the two, the two people who thought were going to be centre forward would almost be playing on the wing. And, and it, worked, it worked very well in the first half. Um, but you have to. I think we also have to qualify it with saying they had like thirty-two percent possession. Um, this is Manchester United at home uh, in a kind of iconic fixture, and they, you know they were we were starting from a low expectation of them, and yes, they exceeded that, and it was a it was a positive performance. They could have won, but still, this is Manchester United at home, and it's not what we expect. Well, let's bring in the Times Chief Sports Writer, Matt Dickinson, who was at Old Trafford yesterday, joins us now. Uh, Matt, Jurgen Klopp after the game was left frustrated by United's tactics. He said one team set out to defend and one team made the game. Is there anything wrong with United's tactics or do you think this is just sour grapes from Klopp? I was about to call him peevish, churlish yesterday until he sort of qualified it by saying, you know, Liverpool had caused themselves a lot of problems in the first half because I thought, you know, ultimately, you know, you're coming as a champions. Liverpool were odds on. I mean, I got, um, um, I couldn't resist a little flutter on Manu to win um, 1-0 at 12-1 to at home, which is just ridiculous, sort of crazy odds when you're talking about this giant of a club. Um, So, you know, I I think Solskjaer was, you know, allowed, um, any manager is, but particularly in these circumstances, to come up with a game plan that he thought would be effective, no matter whether that's 20%, 30%, 20%, 30%, or whatever percent possession, whatever style. I mean, as Gregor says, you know, that's not necessarily going to work uh, in in every game. And it's certainly not going to rebuild the United that needs to be rebuilt, but in, in a, a sort of bespoke horses-for-courses strategy. Uh, it, you know, it, it took Liverpool by surprise, um, not just the way it was set up, but in how effective it was. And I think... Um, you know, I mean, Klopp obviously wanted just to make the point that um, 
uh, you know, it was tough for his team, but yeah, he was he, he needed and did acknowledge that his own side fell well short of of what they're capable of. And I mean, just on that strength and depth issue, I, I thought that was possibly the one, the sort of biggest uh, boost Liverpool could take is that they each one of their substitutions made a difference and and improved them. I mean, Henderson did well to last on as long as he did. Agree with, you know, I'm, I'm hoping and expecting more from Cater. I thought Oxley Chamberlain brought a real sort of dynamism to it that they'd lacked uh, or were starting to lack. And uh, obviously Lallana added the goal. So all three changes showed that at least in the sort of attacking midfield sort of options, they, they have got um, you know, some, some useful choices that he'll need. As Gregor said, though, not many were expecting Manchester United to, to win this game. James, Henry Winter in the game today writes, defiant draw can be a turning point for Solskjaer. Do you agree with him? United are playing a certain type of football this season. I think they're playing quite differently from how they played under Solskjaer at the back end of last season, or or sorry, throughout when he was in charge last season, when they would generally play in quite open games and, yeah, they rode their luck to a certain extent, but, you know, they, they would, you know, kind of, their attacking talent would sort of drag them through, particularly if you remember when they were playing really well around sort of, you know, January this season they've been they've been pretty defensive um and they've actually defended pretty well i mean if you look at a lot of the stats in terms of chances conceded and expected goals conceded they're right down the bottom as in you know they're as in good um and they're playing in games generally that are quite tight games of quite few chances um and they've probably been a little bit unlucky i think um clearly they're not playing particularly well in attack or, or indeed at all well, but obviously there's the mitigation of they've not had Pogba or Martial. Um, and um, so I think in, in general, um, whether this result will be a catalyst, I mean, yes, psychologically, I think it, it will probably be a bit of a boost. But I think in general, there is a bit of a cause uh, for optimism with uh, perhaps more so than the table would suggest, I think. They're a team with a pretty solid defensive platform this season. If you look at their games, how they've played, they're not giving up a lot of chances. They're pretty solid at the back. I think Maguire and Wambasaka both betting in really well and look to be really good signings. The attack is quite poor at the moment, quite dysfunctional, but you've got Pogba and Martial to come back and... and yeah, so I think I would be I'd be surprised if they don't start to move up the table. I mean, Rashford was back to his best. That's that's the biggest positive I think for Manchester United attacking wise. And you kind of by with every passing game, you see the importance of Dan James as well. He's like he's a brave little thing, isn't he? He's getting smashed all over the place and getting back up, and he's he's a real threat with his pace. I thought Andres Pereira had probably his best game for certainly that I've seen in uh, in a Manchester United shirt. Um, and even Fred sort of mm. was, you know, he was flying into tackles and and uh, doing things that weren't knocking it out of play and stuff. So um, yeah, no, there was definitely positives for Manchester United. It's just that they they aren't going to play against Liverpool, who are coming out, you know, leaving these spaces and 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 really trying to attack them every week. That's that's they're going to be in Liverpool's position most week, trying to break down defenses. And that's where that's where Manchester United have really struggled so far this year. It's interesting because something that Solskjaer has mentioned a lot whenever he sort of talks about, you know, the Manchester United way and how he wants to play, the, how he wants his team to play, is countering. And, you know, he wants his team to be really devastating on the counter-attack. And it kind of feels to me like that has sort of 
that's gone from being sort of like a feature of the way they play to being quite a sort of like defining character. It's like almost like they're defining kind of tactical characteristic now that they defend pretty solidly and they will try to hit you on the break. But there's not maybe very much more than that. And you've got to be playing against someone who allows you to, you know, who comes out and, and attacks you, or else there's no counter break to have. Yeah, and I think that's why, to a certain extent, I think they look they look quite comfortable with that with that game plan yesterday. But obviously, it's, you know, it's it's as you say, it's how you take that into play against you know teams that are not Liverpool. Mm. Well, let's talk about VAR, shall we? Because <laughs> <laughs> because it, it is another game perhaps dogged by some controversy in this one. Jurgen Klopp says he was 100% sure VAR would disallow Marcus Rashford's opener for a foul on Divock Origi. Klopp said this, I calmed everyone down because I knew immediately they scored the goal and Mr Atkinson, Martin Atkinson, immediately signalled VAR. Now, without VAR, I'm 100% sure Atkinson would have blown for a foul. This does not make sense. It is a clear VAR issue with how we deal with it in the moment. So, that wasn't the only decision that VAR had to get involved with. There was the Sadio Mane goal that was then chalked off for a handball from him before Adam Lallana then went on and scored that late equaliser. Matt, do we agree with the decisions that uh, VAR, VAR came up with at Old Trafford? Um, I, think I, I think I do, yes. I, do, I, I, I sort of agreed with Klopp's wider point while sort of disagreeing with the specific. Um, just, you know, because VAR is so, so clear-cut. Let's, uh, it, it, this, this one, you know, we could spend 20 minutes just on one decision here. I mean, I, you know, he had a point that, you know, it is fair to ask, and this has been discussed since VR's implementation of, of the need for referees to call what they see and not to almost rely on uh, VAR as a sort of insurance policy. You know, I'll, I'll let that possible foul go because if it's a bad, you know, if I've made a mistake, the VAR will save me. That That is not how referees are, are, are told on that sort of, uh, yeah, they're told to sort of, you know, call, call what they see. But, on, you know, the, the, the way... So there's a sort of broader point that Klopp was raising, which you know is, is you know is is a sort of live discussion um, around VAR. On the specifics of this, though, the way Martin Atkinson was refereeing that game, you know, I'm not convinced he would give it a foul. I thought it was probably a foul, but equally, the way Origi goes down, it was it was certainly theatrical to say the least. Um, you know, certainly looked sort of above and beyond whatever contact there was. Yeah, the way he was refereeing that game was to allow a reasonable amount of robust challenges. Um, uh, as a sort of Yorkshire copper, he likes to um, <laughs> often to sort of have that uh, have that style. And um, I think he. So I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that uh, he, he would have definitely given it. And I, I think. Yeah, we had a guidance at the start before the start of the season about how far they would go back, and this was certainly sort of right, stretching the limit. Um, I mean, it was, it did set off the move, it did sort of catch Liverpool slightly off uh, off balance. Um, so if it was a clear foul, you could say, well, yeah, it should definitely have been called back. But I think in terms of the amount of play that then went into the goal, it was sort of say right on the limit of how far you would ever want to go back. And I think there's just a broader point, which I guess come back to is that ultimately. Which I've sort of written this morning is that you know there's a there's a limit to how much VR should be interfering, how much we should want it to interfere, and you know we come back to that issue of sort of clear blunders. Um, I don't think this hits the threshold, so I, I I am not 
we can quibble about it. We can say it was probably a foul, possibly a foul. We can say Liverpool were a bit unlucky. But I don't think this comes down under the sort of, you know, it was a blunder, VAR has failed. Do you think then, Matt, going back onto the point you made about insurance, that some referees may well be using VAR as an insurance, do you, do you actually think that is happening? I'm sure it's sort of human, yeah, just the nature of it. It, it can happen and it, it will happen. But, you know, obviously, say they're, you know, they're trained to... To, to sort of, you know, not make that happen um, where possible. I mean, obviously, linesmen, we're told, you know, told to sort of let the play run because we don't want to flag in for a potential offside that, you know, and they get it wrong. That, that, that can be called back. That's a sort of a matter of fact that can be resolved. Whereas, you know, these sort of, was that a foul, wasn't it a foul, that are always going to be grey areas. I think they are, you know, they are encouraged to, to, to sort of call what they see. And, I'm, you know, I say, uh, uh, if you line... 10 people up, I don't know, would 7 out of 10 say that was a foul? Maybe, but I don't think 10 out of 10 would. And that's where, you know, that's, that's where people have to accept that VAR can, is there to avoid the worst decisions, not to try and re-referee every single decision. There is that argument as well, Matt, that perhaps uh, David Coote, who was the was VAR for this game, a junior official, perhaps didn't want to overrule a senior referee when it comes to these sort of on-field subjective decisions. Well, that's what I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people. And, I, you know, again, it's, you know, this is all, you know, certainly what I've said all along is that, you know, we're not going to get VR right straight away and people should be sort of grown up enough to accept that, you know, the system, yeah, they might not like the system as it is now, so let's talk about improving the system. Uh, you know, the issue of whether the referees should go over to the monitor, that was used, obviously, you know, we've seen that used back to the 2018 World Cup. The, the Premier League didn't want to go down that because they felt that the English game was, was sort of impatient to keep the game flowing and that they felt that, you know, ultimately referees work as a team. If a linesman sees something blatant, he flags and tells the referee. If a VAR sees something blatant, he can, you know, speak into a microphone and tell the referee too. So this was a way of keeping the game moving, not having the delay while the referee trots over to the, to the monitor under that sort of pressure every time and the two guys can communicate and i i have to say i think that i preferred that system because i think you know ultimately these guys are working as a team the var gets to see the replays if it's a and also it it keeps that issue of vars only interfere when it is a clear blunder Mm -hmm. rather than the referee constantly going back and testing his own marginal decisions so i i know why that i can see why there's an argument about using the pitch side monitor but i don't think I would suddenly do a U-turn just based on this decision, far from it. Gregor, where do you stand on the fact that they, there is the potential for referees to look at these pitch-side monitors, but they're not? I think people kind of, you know, that was an anathema earlier in this, before the season started, you know. But I think that actually opinions probably going towards that because there's so many decisions that we're seeing or people are not agreeing with. Um, the, the sort of, the, the bigger goal of getting more correct decisions is probably some, that's something that people are more willing to sort of go for now I think I think on Klopp's point about it being a you know some referees using VAR as an insurance policy almost I think there has been more there has been incidents particularly in around the box with kind of I don't know even you know potential penalty kicks and things like that that you could see that argument but in this case no I mean the, it was inside uh, Lindelof's own half when he made the challenge um, and I also think it you know it wasn't that far back it was because you know the, the ball was probably in the back of the net within four or five seconds um, 
But I don't think the, the referee used that as an insurance policy in this case because there was so, you know, mm. there was so so, so far to go. Um, but I do think that is a that is a potential issue. What about now? I don't know where all of you stand on this, but uh, if you've been watching the Rugby World Cup, and obviously we know that they have TMO in, in rugby, and they're so good at communicating the decisions that they come up with in rugby. Is that something we should be wanting with our own technology that we're implementing with VAR so that actually, even though we might still not agree with the final decision, James, we actually will understand the thinking behind it all? <laughs> um it does look good when they do it in, in rugby. The, the, you know, the communication is clear. Would that help in football? Maybe it would. But then again, you've got the kind of issue that football is obviously kind of it's a more fast paced, free flowing game. You don't have to lot. You're not kind of as a cus- rugby. You're sort of culturally are quite accustomed to having quite long stoppages in the game, which obviously you're not so much in football. Would that just add additional time? Maybe. I don't know. For, for me, I think one one issue that I think they've got in my opinion is I don't mind the so-called high bar for intervention on stuff like fouls like Matt I was pretty okay with the decisions in yesterday's match maybe it was a foul but it didn't strike me as a kind of egregious error the the problem that you've got though is obviously you've got a very you've got a completely different attitude towards offside decisions where you have even the most kind of infinitesimal kind of offsides being kind of reviewed again and again and you know you can have a goal sort of ruled out you know literally for kind of like you know centimeters of somebody's shoulder i understand conceptually why that's the case because uh offside is supposedly an objective decision whereas fouls are subjective i understand that in theory in practice i think it looks absurd Mm. because you've got you know you've got a a policy of you know a kind of deliberate policy of very much non-intervention on certain kind of decisions and a policy of absolutely kind of excruciatingly minute reviewing of other decisions. And obviously wasn't the case yesterday, but obviously there's no reason why you couldn't have, you know, two of those in the same game. I just think that to me strikes me as kind of uh, as a as a kind of tension that I don't know, I don't like, but I, un- I understand it. But for me, it's it's a bit ridiculous. Well, VAR controversy wasn't just limited to the game at Old Trafford. Elsewhere in Manchester City's win over Crystal Palace, Kevin De Bruyne collided with Wilfred Zaha and a penalty wasn't given in that uh, game. Also in the match for uh, Tottenham against Watford, which ended in that one-all draw, uh, the company supplying the VAR technology, Hawkeye Innovations, had to apologise to uh, both sets of fans after a graphic error during that game. That was after the Spurs midfielder Deli Ali salvaged a point for Spurs four minutes from time, cancelling out Abdullah Decore's opener for Watford. Now, the referee in this one was Christopher Kavanagh. He initiated this VAR check after he suspected the ball may have been handled by Ali prior to it hitting the back of the net. The goal was reviewed. The decision was made to award the goal, with the referee signalling to the players to head back to the centre circle. But instead of that being shown on the big screen... It indicated the decision was a no-goal verdict, so confusion reigned momentarily. Uh, Tottenham were also fortunate to, to not give away a penalty. Jan Vertonghen's challenge on Gerard de la Feu in the box was not awarded. Do these sorts of incidents, so the confusion of graphics, the penalty that most people, I think, are saying was a penalty, 
give more ammunition, Gregor, to those that argue VR as ruining the game. I'm sure it does, yeah. <laughs> um, look, that, yeah, it was a mistake that shouldn't really happen. Uh, but it did. I'm sure it, we won't see that again. I'm pretty certain of that. The, the biggest issue was the, the penalty kick that wasn't. I mean, that... I know these are, you know, everything's subjective with it when it's a foul, but that's pretty clear and pretty obvious. I think he had a couple of hooks at, um, at Delafu, and I don't, I can't see how that's that's not given. Um, and it was, it, 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 I can't see how that was not given. And really, that, that I think that's probably the thing that is going to give a stick to to beat VR with the most. The, these incidents where really the bar has seemed so high that really it's almost non-existent now. Matt, just a final word from you then on on that particular incident. As Gregor has said, and everyone's been mentioning this high bar, is that what that would have come down to? Because it did seem quite clear-cut, that penalty. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that was that was one of the more obvious... Uh, well, it seems to me one of the more obvious sort of errors of the simple, you know, human errors um, rather than VAR errors, because ultimately that does come down to to um yeah the human implementation of it rather mm. so yeah i think that i think like gregor i thought that was odd um but yeah let's uh, again it's that that's that's the human the human error not the system and i think that's yeah with how many times have we talked about this of just that need to accept that the system is you know it never was going to be this perfect system it never could be it never was going to clear everything up it never was going to put everything right it was there to because in the you know, the modern world that we're living in, it seems pretty odd to have a bloke running around making mistakes, making some huge mistakes all the time when we can help him not make those mistakes. Um, and if we sort of just try and occasionally pause the breath and remember what you know what the overall aim is and what the gains can be, then we, you know we don't have to sort of lurch from you know oh, let's change the system just because one decision didn't quite fit what we thought it should be. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, an FA Cup tie was abandoned after Harringay Borough's manager took his team off the field amid accusations of racism, bottle throwing and spitting. The homekeeper, Valerie Douglas Pagetat, was reportedly spat at and hit by an object thrown from the Yeovil town end. Defender Kobe Rowe was then racially abused, according to the Harringay boss, Tom Loizu, who said there was no way I could let him continue and that if we get punished and thrown out, I don't care. The match was played at non-league side Haringey's home ground of Coles Park Stadium and it was the fourth qualifying round of the FA Cup with the winner set to progress to the first round proper. Now in the game today, Matt Lawton and Tom Roddy reflect on this shocking incident and Tom joins us now. Tom, thank you for, for joining us on what is another hideous 
um, incident of racism in, in football. It, just a few days ago, we were talking about the worrying troubles for England in Bulgaria, and now a game here in England has had to be abandoned due to this racist abuse. Yes, I was going to say that. We, it's a kind of a timely reminder, and, and you and I have been speaking about this quite often, and out in Bulgaria talking about um, England and, and Gareth Southgate's um, experiences with racism and, and this is just an, a, a, a timely reminder of the issues at home. Um, Kobe Rowe spoke really quite eloquently yesterday about the experiences, about the fact this is the first time he's experienced it in, in English football and it was an unprecedented step for a professional or semi-professional side to walk off the field um, at that game at Haringey. Um, and it's now kind of up to the up to the FA um, as to how they'll they'll deal with it, and we're not sure how it's going to pan out. Um, the we we expect that the sanctions will be placed on individuals rather than the club as a whole because of the precedent it mm. could set. It's uh, I'm sort of looking at the article that you, you've written, Tom, and, and there was um, an incident in non-league football with um, Paddingham FC of the Northwest Counties Football League. They left the field in protest, uh, alleged racist abuse during a game against Congleton Town in October of last year. Uh, Both clubs were actually charged by the FA as a result of this, and it was uh, the club that uh, left the field for the racist abuse that they were suffering that were fined more than the team that uh, the fans came from. Yes. Yeah, it's, it was Which is remarkable, really. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Paddy M were fined £165, while Congleton were fined £160. So I don't think we'll see um, that that happen again in, in this instance. Um, I think that the, it's also interesting to point out the, the protocol for, for these racist incidents because it's very similar. The, the FA, the Premier League, the EFL, their protocol for dealing with uh, allegations of, of racism at games is ex- exactly the same or extremely very similar to UEFA's three-step protocol in, in which the first instance um, players and the manager inform the referee that then the game is brought to a halt and an announcement is made as it was in Sofia last week. Uh, The second instance is where the game is suspended for a certain amount of time and in the the FA's wording it is a reasonable amount of time before the game continues. And then the third is where the referee will abandon the game if the calls for the, the, the issues to stop, the abuse to stop is unheeded, but he can only do that following consultation with police and a safety officer. Uh, and what's interesting about that is, is that, and, and forgive my ignorance, I might not know this very well, but in, in non-league games, I'm guessing police won't be heavily involved. No, exactly that. And, and also there are the FA's guidelines are that also EFL representatives are consulted before a referee makes that kind of of decision um but again they're they're unlikely to be at all the games so it is up to the the, the referee who he will have the final say I mean Gregor when you hear the the protocol that is in place it does seem a little outdated in some ways it does and it's just extraordinary that it seems really in the last few months something that's been around for best part of a decade is becoming you know something that we're aware of and talking of and 
and I would say that would be the same of players and and managers and and most people involved in the game. And obviously, if England hadn't hadn't raised this issue and 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 done did what they did in in Bulgaria, even though they didn't walk off the pitch, you know, it was a huge huge statement and big reaction. This wouldn't have happened. I'm certain of that. Um, but the sad, I mean, look, the saddest thing above all of we're trying to we're trying to deal talk about an issue that is sort of a societal issue, and football cannot tackle it on its own. There's no way that football can football can do the best it can to try and protect the players on the pitch and to try and drive out anyone who is who and and ban anyone who is found to have done anything like this. Um, Really, you're you're tackling something that's far bigger than football, and um, I think really we have to acknowledge that there's no there's no easy easy fix to this. People saying that you know this is great that they've walked off the pitch. This is absolutely great, but I I don't I don't know you know I don't I don't know it it brings awareness of the issue, um, and no one should have to no one should have to deal with with what with what the player did on the pitch. Um, but it's 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 not a quick fix. Tom, just finally with you, is there any suggestion that Yeovil could be ejected from the FA Cup as a result of this? I think it's extremely unlikely. Um, the issue that the FA see is is that it could set a precedent for clubs going forward. That um, there's the danger that you could see people teased in and then um, it, it ends up with a club being kicked out of the cup. Um, so I think the, the the issue is how they go about punishing uh, the club and Yeovil and uh, the individuals and that, that'll be interesting to we'll see. James, let me ask you, how much credit do we need to give to both Haringey and Yeovil? Because this, is, this was a collective decision. The, the Haringey boss, uh, Loizu, has said that when speaking to, to Yeovil, they said they tried to calm their supporters down. They tried their best and they supported us. They said, if you're walking off, we are walking off with you. Yeah, I think I think the clubs deserve credit. I think, um, you know, that, that sort of solidarity obviously is, is good to hear of um, in the face of such, you know, appalling um, abuse. Um, as Gregor said, it's obviously just, you know, it's depressing that this, you know, is now seemingly... You know, I, I I don't want to sort of I, I don't believe in sort of you know, kind of, it's not from the, you know I think it's my place to sort of you know, preach and say that you know players should always walk off or players shouldn't walk off. For me, you know that that's you know an individual decision very much to be mm-hmm. taken by the players that you know are subjected to the abuse. Some players may want to play on and prove a point, and and or you know some players may have a completely opposite reaction. And I think it, that that's completely fine i i just it's obviously so depressing that we're we're obviously at a point now where this has become seemingly so obviously not common but you know obviously it, it, it's common enough that we're sort of having to kind of you know talk about protocols and sort of you know codifying a sort of response to it which is which is just depressing really and i know i asked tom there about the the possibilities of yeovil being kicked out of the fa cup as a result of this once again the Haringey manager has said that that he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want Yeovil Town to get punished for it. He says if we if we get to thrown out of the FA Cup and they go through, there is no hard feelings as well. So he's aware there could be repercussions for Haringey walking off. But what do you think should happen? Should this be replayed and it just does come down to the individuals? 
Yeah, I mean that's the ideal scenario, and it's look, it's not, it's very different to to Bulgaria. Bulgaria were serial offenders. That's why I said last, in the last pod that they should be thrown out. They've shown very little willingness to tackle an issue. Um, this is this is well abhorrent. It is a, a, a handful of fans, perhaps we don't even know how many fans that have directed something very personally and in close proximity to someone on the pitch. Um, and I don't think that that you know I don't think that has any bearing on Yeovil Town Football Club. I don't think that they should really be punished for that. And I know there'll be people who disagree. There'll be people who think that you know taking a hard line, if you know that's the only way you're going to stop the fans and supporters of a, of your club because it could get your club thrown out of the competition. I get that, but I also think that there's you know it, then it opens up the possibility of it being abused, and mm. it's not an easy easy uh, topic to tackle and it's bigger than football it's something that you know I think if you deny the kind of political climate I know it's a football podcast but you deny that and the sort of an emboldened far right right across Europe then you're living in the clouds because that is something that we, you know we're seeing more incidents not just in football we're seeing them on the streets and that is this is a bigger issue than football Well, it's time to round up the EFL. And, uh, Gregor, you've continued your tour of the country's uh, football league grounds. And this weekend, you've been to see how Reading got on after they sacked Jose Gomez and then replaced him with their sporting director, Mark Bowen. That was a bit controversial in itself. Um, but you've written about this. It's at the back of the game. And life under Bowen began with a dramatic last gasp winner. It did, yeah. It was an awful game. <laughs> I mean, really terrible. Preston North End, they were, they were playing uh, high flying up the top of the championship, and they were they were awful as well. Alex Alex Ray afterwards was was not pleased. Um, but Reading will not care, you know. I think uh, they'd lost lost five out of the last six league games, I think. And um, having just sacked Josie Gomez. Um, it was and the, con- the controversy of of the last week obviously the, the the situation was mark mark Rowan was um was the the sporting director and he was had begun to draw up a, a short list of of managers um and then was offered the position himself um, is this bef- before any interview process then as you say he drew- yeah there was no oh. interviews at all okay um so it was a surprise to him it was a surprise to the fans uh, it was a surprise to most people really um and he's been a number two to Mark, to Mark Hughes in the Premier League and with Wales for best part of two decades. Um, so he's not, you know, he's not a suit sitting upstairs. He has is someone who can work on the training ground. But um, really, just in the broader context of Reading, it's you know the, the fan base are pretty growing pretty disillusioned there because ever since um, Majeski, the former owner, sold up after twenty two years, that was back in kind of two thousand twelve. They've had Russian, Russian owner who treated the club a bit, bit like a kind of plaything with his playing with his father's money. Um, a Thai consortium who sold the club and uh, after kind of completing a bit of a, a land grab with a development in mind next to the, the stadium, and now Chinese owners who have never appeared in public really um, or spoken publicly anyway, and who have now got sacked three managers in the last 18 months. And the, the strange thing was that Josie Gomez is really, 
was loved by the supporters. He, he, he came in last season, kept Reading in the Championship, um, but he's, he left with the worst win percentage record of any Reading manager in, in, in their history. And yet they, they loved this guy because he kind of re- re- reconnected with the fans a little bit. Um, they treated him to a Portugal day on the last the last day of the season to sort of say <laughs> thank you. Um, so the, his dismissal wasn't popular either. And the, just the, the kind of standing of the guy who, who replaced him and the, although Bowen obviously denies any part in either dismissal of Gomez or the appointment of himself uh, it was a, a peculiar episode um, so Bowen was really delighted to get the three points as I'm sure you can imagine but he will need a lot more of them I think uh, until the kind of perceptions are changed there Is there, I mean it's been as you mentioned a troubling time at, time of Red, at Reading uh, of late, is he I mean, this is his first managerial job, isn't yeah. it? So it's a bit of a risk, but they'll obviously be hoping that he can bring that stability back to a club that has been struggling of late. Yeah, I mean, he spoke about the the need for unity and I think, you know, social media is not a good barometer, but um, that was not <laughs> that was not, uh, not present when the announcement was made. And there was no real announcement of him as a new manager before kickoff either. It was just kind of washed over. Yeah. But I think that's probably because the reaction might not have been that great. So look, he knows the only way he can he can get fans on side is by turning things around on the pitch. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether whether he can do that because Reading have, have really struggled since reaching the championship playoff final under Yapstam in 2017. Penalty kicks really decided. Huddersfield went up and, and Reading stayed down. And ever since then, that was when the, the transaction took place between the tie consortium and the, the, the Chinese owners as well and really ever since then the club has been in a downward spiral so it's going to be a tough job to arrest that. So it wasn't the best game but <laughs> I'm believing that there was a, a, a contender for flag of the season possibly. Yes it, well, I mean it wasn't connected to this but it was it was <laughs> um, Ricky Gervais, uh, David Brent the, the office character obviously located and slowed down the road. Uh, a nice kind of picture of him with his cheesy grin and his fingers pointing pointing at you saying guilty I'm a Reading fan which was a line <laughs> from the programme so I was well amused by that and that, that made its way into my intro if you want to read it listeners <laughs> <laughs> The Champions League is back this week and we've just picked out uh, two games involving English sides that we thought we might uh, find a little bit interesting to look at Tottenham take on Red Star Belgrade Tottenham with just one win in seven in all competitions. As for Red Star Belgrade, they're in fine form, winning their last six in all competitions. Uh, James, this has got to be a must-win, isn't it, for Tottenham in their Champions League hopes? Uh, well, yes, possibly. I mean, the only thing is you obviously hesitate to say must-win because you remember how they started last season. I know, that's it. And they had Every one point from, it. you know, mm. three games. So, obviously, not just for the Champions League, their Champions League aspirations, but obviously just the kind of the wider mood around the club, the wider sense of a sort of, you know, terminal decline of this team. It looked obviously like you would have thought Watford at the weekend would have been, a, you know, obviously the team at the bottom of the Premier League would have been a good opportunity for a kind of morale-boosting win. And obviously it very much did not work out like that. Obviously, you know, getting a late draw in what was a very kind of even game, um, one where they did not really kind of impose any sort of superiority you know, I don't think Pochettino is going to be sacked if they lose, but you know it would only kind of help deepen the kind of sense of a sort of real tailspin at, at Tottenham. That game at the weekend, it was a real opportunity for them to sort of regroup and, and go again as such, but it ended up being that 
one all draw with Watford. And it was a very disappointing performance from Tottenham. Yeah, I was reading Gary Jacobs' piece on, on the way in here and he, the back five lost the ball 91 times, which kind of is not good. And I think, you know, there, we've spoken about the problems in in great length and... and there are just there are just too many players whose kind of futures are uncertain, and um, and the manager has has helped cultivate that 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 sort of discussion and that and the uncertainty even about his his own future as well. So I don't I agree with James. I don't think Pochettino is under pressure in terms of his job, but he's he's under pressure to show that he can kind of galvanise this group of players who seem to be really sort of lethargic and and below par in the performance and some of them unhappy. Um it was really interesting listening to to Josie Mourinho speaking in this in the Sky Sports studio yesterday about the fact that he'd, he'd never wanted any player who didn't want to be there. And he, he referenced uh, Arjen Robin when he he sold Chelsea sold him to to Real Madrid. Um and he said, you know, Chelsea did not want to sell him. They didn't need the money. Uh, I didn't want him to go either, but Robin wanted to go, and so he, you know, they took they took the decision collectively that that was the best thing for the club and for the team. And Tottenham have handled handled these decisions awfully, mm. you know, on numerous occasions. Christian Eriksen is perhaps the latest, um, and and also with players kind of drawn towards the end of the contract, either either they have to bite the bullet sometimes and sell sell for a a fee that they don't that's perhaps lower than what they would expect or uh, they just have to they, they've not dealt with with that situation and I think that is really their biggest their biggest issue which is not going to go away between now and the end of the season so that's what I mean Pochettino has to show that he can kind of get, get over that obstacle I think mm. I think psychologically as well the Champions League campaign assumes key importance in terms of motivation for this team because Obviously, we know they're out of the League Cup and they're already out of, you know, they're realistic, they're, they're out of Premier League contention. All right, they want to kind of move themselves back up and, and, and get into the top four, but they're, they're playing catch-up. And from a motivational point of view, that's very different than going out to get something. And so the Champions League, if you like, until obviously, you know, the FA Cup, you know, the latter stages of the FA Cup, which were a long, long way in the distance at the moment, the Champions League is is you know, from a psychological point of view, if they fall out of contention in, in the Champions League, if they, you know, can't qualify from the group stage, what can they really achieve this season? It's that kind of climb, you know, you've just got a long, long slate of Premier League fixtures stretching out ahead of you, you know, to get back into the top four, which is a position that you've already occupied, you know, it should be a kind of bare minimum requirement. It's not something that you're kind of really setting your sights on, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. from a from a psychological point of view, I think this is really important that they kind of remain in the Champions League, um, just to have something to really kind of to really fire them up and to momentum, really kind yeah. of, to really aspire to, to yeah. uh, momentum that that exactly that old chestnut. <laughs> we do love that chef old chef that momentum indeed so that is on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, Chelsea head to Amsterdam to take on Ajax. When you look at uh, the situation in Group H, uh, Chelsea have uh, three points after one win and one defeat. But as for Ajax, well, it's uh, six points, two wins out of two for them. So, James, how tough a fixture is this for Chelsea? Yeah, this is shaping up, I think, to be 
probably the toughest toughest fixture of the group. We sort of weren't quite sure when the you know at the start of the season how formidable Ajax would be. They obviously lost some key players in the summer, uh, Frankie de Jong and uh, Matthijs de Ligt, but um, they really appear to have rebounded very well from those departures. They've been extremely impressive in their two Champions League games so far, which both of which they won 3-0 against mm. Valencia and, and Lille. Um, obviously, the team looks a little different. Um, you've got um, Joel Veltman, um, who sort of played a little bit at right back in, in last season's Champions League campaign, has now come in uh, to fill that gap that De Ligt has left at centre-back. And, and you've sort of got a new double pivot in the middle, which is made up of Edson Alvarez, the Mexican, and Lisandro Martinez, the Argentinian, both very, very young players, both converted centre-backs, sort of playing in that double double pivot in uh, in midfield. The front four is still pretty much intact. You, the entire front four that kind of thrilled us last season of Van der Beek, um, Neres, Tadic and Hakim Ziyech are all still there. Um, Quincy Promes has, has played as well. Um, they look, yeah, so they look really the, the, the class of this group and, and, you know, this match is probably going to be Chelsea's toughest test of the group stage. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, James Gearbrand, Tom Roddy and Matt Dickinson. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday looking back on a busy week of Champions League action. game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone 